Americans have an interesting relationship with tea. We think of it when we're sick, on a cleanse, or that time we dumped a bunch of it in the harbor. In other places in the world, this beverage and ingredient is revered in a very different way, building rituals, even times of the day around it. Anna Dane and the team at In Pursuit of Tea go directly to the source in India, China, and Taiwan and return with single origin teas, each unique in style, flavor, and preparation. Not in China with the tea business, it's not about the money, it's about the connection and the relationship you have. If I wanna buy from that guy, I need to go back next April and the following April and the following April and just keep showing up and just, you know, tasting his tea and trying to, hey, can I, can I watch you make your tea? I won't record it or anything, I'm just, I'm interested. And maybe after 10 years, he'll be like, okay, someone died, you can get on my waiting list. Colonial ties, misconceptions of origin, and power shape tea's path to the shelves in our cupboards. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress, where we sit down for tea service and, well, we get a little tea drunk. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. Our interview today, we were in New York for. It was so much fun. There, the In Pursuit of Tea office is right near Madison Square Park. So we had a lovely walk from the subway, but it was crazy. There was like a farmer's market going on. People were screaming. There were just a lot of people all over the place. And then we get to the building and we go upstairs and it's like the most zen place we've ever been. They were sort of walking like they were weightless like I don't think you would hear like a footstep when they came to greet us like everyone was just so they were just so lovely it was really really nice to meet their team it's a small team yeah so only like three or four people right right just a couple people and we got to sit down and actually have a tea service with Anna which was which you'll definitely hear in the interview (laughs) she really wanted to do the tea service and we thought about the audio style you know should we be boiling water pouring tea this whole time and it felt right so that's what we did we drank a lot of tea we got tea drunk i got tea drunk were you tea drunk i can handle my tea pretty well but that was a lot of tea they were also in the gaiwan right so it was sort of multiple infusions of the same tea sort of pushing its limits and then at the end we got to have a puer which was my first puer and very wild flavor wise really cool colleen What's a gaiwan? I learned this from you when we were at your house and you were serving me tea. Colleen serves me all sorts of beverages when we are at her house uh, recording because she's just like the best host ever. And I, sometimes I have matcha, but I learned what a gaiwan was from you. So tell us what a gaiwan is. So a gaiwan is probably my favorite way to brew tea. It's porcelain, ceramic, and you sort of hold it with one hand. So there's a place for your thumb on the top and your fingers on the bottom, and it's quite small. It's probably only a few inches across. There's a few different sizes. And the idea is that you're brewing these with multiple infusions. And so it's sort of brewing between two and four ounces at a time. Uh, and you can open it up and you can look at the leaves, and it's it's just so lovely. I'm starting to see tea in more high-end cafes get a little bit more respect on the menu and I'm sure you see this a lot in the coffee world right like is tea do you think tea will ever hit the status level of coffee is it like a different world that tea lives in or can these things like live in parallel or what are you seeing in the tea world from a coffee perspective I think So there's a few companies that have sort of brought tea to the forefront in the coffee industry and have have made it more popular. I think when you go into a cafe and you see that they're pricing things or a restaurant, they're pricing the tea differently depending on the tea and they're giving you names that are specific to regions or maybe in another language. That's a good indicator that these people are brewing something special behind the bar. They're paying something extra. They might brew it with multiple infusions. That means you take the tea leaves and you're brewing it more than once using the same product, which you can't really do with coffee right now. So there's a lot of cool things about tea that once people learn about tea and find the kind of tea they like, I think they're fully converted. Because the idea of sitting and having tea all day and drinking it for a couple hours, that's sometimes the best way to do work when you're working remote, you can get some tea that you can brew multiple infusions. You can get seven infusions, seven brews out of some teas. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. That was the first time I think I'd had 
a proper, proper tea service. So big thanks to everybody at In Pursuit of Tea for having us that day. Lovely hospitality. Uh, Sebastian, Anna, and Anna, we're coming back to see you soon in your beautiful uh, New York tasting room that you just opened. So exciting. So we did this uh, yeah, interview in New York in April. And as you mentioned, let's get right into it. Before, the American tea market is still in its infancy. Um, so we're at early stages of it, even now. It definitely is a lot uh, bigger than it was, and I think knowledge and um, interest has expanded. But back when In Pursuit of Tea was founded in 1999, there really were only a few players on the scene other than commercial commodity grade tea, which we can talk about in a second. Um, so there were a few places that were doing, you know, some more direct sourcing or maybe less blended teas, which is a lot of what you see in the Western market now. But um, when Sebastian and his friends started it, it was unusual to do all direct sourcing and to keep the final teas unblended, which is something that's still incredibly important to us 20 years later. And it might not seem like a big distinction, but if you walk into any supermarket or even a specialty market and you start looking at the tea shelf, I mean, many things might jump out to you if you start paying attention to it, but the vast majority of them um, are blended or flavored teas for the American market. Um, and with your knowledge of the coffee market too, that's interesting because you can put put it in a larger context. Sure. Um, but roughly, and I don't know, I'm going to ramble a little bit how far back we're going to go, but since the American Revolution, basically Americans stopped drinking tea. Um, it was considered unpatriotic. This is Boston Tea Party, all this dumping the tea in the harbor to show non-allegiance um, to the King of England. That mentality has persisted. On some level, Americans started really drinking coffee heavily then, and that never really let up. Um, again, the market is growing, and there's kind of nowhere to go but up from now, which is great, um, but we're still left with this, like, nobody knows anything. Um, so from the infancy of the, you know, American sort of single origin unblended tea market, that's pretty much when In Pursuit of Tea came in. There were a few people in the 80s, I'd say, that were doing it, but not nearly on the level that you see now, as you mentioned. I'd say even probably the past five years, um, because it's getting increasingly easy to source, um, source directly because of the internet, right? So you can, if you have a connection, maybe you have, you know, you know someone in Taiwan, you're like, I want to start a tea company and have directly sourced Taiwanese teas. You can, you know, pull someone up on WeChat and, you know, you can start this relationship, get the tea shipped over here and, and do that. Um, but in 1999, that technology didn't really exist. Um, right. So it had to be done, I guess you could call it the old fashioned way, but you could probably say that about a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what you see here, a lot of what we do. Um, with going directly to Asia, to these traditional areas of production, meeting the farmers, hanging out with them, watching what they're doing, tasting on site, and then just picking what you like and bring it back. No, no blending, no flavoring. So as a business model, it's actually incredibly simple because it's just very, um, it's taste driven. It's what do you like? Pick what you like, that's a good example of the category. And of course, there's always that thought probably a little bit too much in the back of our minds is what our third partner would say because he's the money guy. Um, can you sell it to a Western market? So have you found part of my job is calibrating with my customers to mm -hmm. make sure that what I'm bringing in is both flavor and price mm -hmm. makes sense for them um, and also understanding in different markets what that means, right? And so I've yeah. been on a table with someone from Japan that described a coffee as sweet and they use the word shrimp to describe it because <laughs> shrimp is sweet. You, you know, right. in terms of seafood. But good luck saying that to like an American buyer. Oh man, yeah. that would not They're work, like, right? No, I don't want this coffee. <laughs> yeah, and so, I, I mean, I think lexicon and, and language is really interesting, but I yeah. even think global calibration is even more interesting, right? Absolutely. So do you find, um, do you find that Americans like a specific kind of tea or, or more willing to pay? Wow, that smells so lovely. Are they more willing to pay for teas with certain profiles? To generalize, Americans, Maybe it's not a nice thing to say, but I think the American palate, I'd say, has a long way to go. Um, just generally speaking, we don't have the same kinds of cultural traditions with food that many other countries have because a lot of us came from so many different places and we're sort of slowly building this society together, if you want to think about it in like some positive sense. Uh, not always successfully, but you know, it's, it's a little different, <laughs> yeah. especially you know where we go in Asia to source these teas. People are making the same style of tea that they've made in some cases for hundreds or even thousands of years because guess what? This is where you grew up. This is what your parents made. This is what your grandparents made. This is what your great-grandparents made. You make one style of tea 
that is tea to you. You're eating this type of vegetable prepared this way because that's the tradition in your region. Here, we do have the flexibility with tea and with other food. It's like, whatever, I can eat Thai or Chinese or pizza, and it doesn't seem to clash at all. Um, but I think flavor-wise, because we have this, this big selection, this kind of mishmash, um, maybe that's why Americans like big, noticeable flavors, mm -hmm. subtle flavors, funky flavors, kind of... Um, and we'll taste a tea, I think that exemplifies this really well. We can taste one after this. You know, anything that tastes sort of too odd or I think not sweet or not bold can be a tough sell depending on the context. Mm. So what's really interesting about what I get to do is I'm sitting here with the restaurant person who comes in and they say, hey, for my restaurant I want, I need a black tea, green tea, a couple herbals. And I'm like, okay, well, we're here, we're tasting, let's see what else. Yes, I'm in sales. I'm going to make you what you ask, and I'm not going to try and um, talk you into something that I don't think would work for your restaurant. But um, beyond those basic flavor profiles, yes, Americans like sweet, or they like something that can um, sort of hit you up front. I think there's a lot of flexibility, but it's more in the tea world, getting the person to sit down and just be open to trying it. Now, when I pull a GM or a beverage director or you know, the wine buyer into this context, it's easy because we're in this weird tiny little tea room with wooden stumps and tiny thimble cups and you know weird objects all over the place um, but what about when they're in their restaurant or how are they presenting this to their customers we do sell retail but we're mainly wholesalers so there's sort of this one step removed sure um, and I think those bold flavors certainly come through and you do see yes teas that have a really distinctive flavor profile that taste chocolatey or that taste roasty sometimes those are a very easy sell but something like this Baochong that we're drinking right now which is a really greenish oolong from Taiwan um, oolongs are a partially oxidized form of tea mm -hmm. so all tea actually comes from this one Camilla sinensis tea plant but how you process the leaf after you pick it determines the type so we have white tea green tea oolong tea black tea and pu'er tea or hecha this dark category and Roughly speaking, it's either oxidized or not. And that scale that I just listed them on was less oxidized or um, least processed to most oxidized. Or so, most what processed. would be the most oxidized and least oxidized? Black tea, if you pick that Camilla sinensis tea leaf and you let it sit out and just wither naturally or lose moisture, it will start to oxidize naturally. And you can think of um, basil if you ever, have ever made pesto. Mm -hmm. So, if you pick a sprig of basil and you lay it here on the table while we're chatting and you do nothing to it what happens to the leaf what do you what do you notice it shrivels shrivels do you know it's brown turns brown it's yeah. oxidizing so any plant goes through this natural process of decay if you remove it from the mother plant with tea if you wanted to make a black tea you're picking the leaves off and you want it to oxidize so basically you just let it sit out for a longer period of time if you think back to that basil analogy and if you were making pesto or even if you just pick up the basil leaf and kind of twist it or not even cut it but just hit it with the back of the knife you'll notice that darkening that oxidation happens where you've bruised the leaf where you've manipulated it the enzyme that causes oxidation is trapped within the plant cell walls if you rupture the cell walls the enzyme is released in that process it also interacts with oxygen in the air and that happens faster and you can start to think of apples and avocados and all these lovely things that you guys have <laughs> that um, you know they're reacting and they're, it's basically a process of decay if you wanted to make a green tea if you harvest that leaf and you heat it past 150 degrees Fahrenheit it actually denatures the enzyme that causes oxidation so it stabilizes the leaf and then that's why you're left with a leaf that looks green as opposed to a leaf that looks black for a black tea now an oolong like this baochong from taiwan that we're drinking right now you can think of as a partially oxidized tea so it's sort of like the rosé of the tea world um, the leaves would be picked and they'd be allowed to sit out and oxidize naturally for some period of time two hours three hours five hours depending on the style that the farmer is going for mm -hmm. and then it goes through some other shaping and some um, pretty other complex processes but it's either 10% oxidized or 20 or 50 or 80. This is a very, very lightly oxidized oolong. As you can see, the leaves still look green. The color in the cup is green and I don't know what you guys get out of it, but you know, it's sweet, it's light, it's floral. Yeah. Um, a more oxidized oolong starts to get closer to black tea territory. So a little earthier, a little darker, and we can of course taste some of those. So how do they gauge that oxidation when the oxidation is at the right point for flavor? How do they judge that? Is it by sight or by tools? Um, it's the tools of you know the human mind, basically. It is by sight, but it's by touch. Um, it's by scent, um, and it's also occasionally you'll see a farmer, you know, grab a leaf, put it in their mouth. But I'd say feel and um, no, they're all really important. Feel, touch, and scent, because when you 
And to back up just a teeny bit, when you're processing tea, um, traditionally, meaning it's hand-picked and it's hand-manipulated to yield the final product, in these countries where we're sourcing for traditional teas, so we're talking Taiwan, like we're drinking now, China, Japan, India, and Sri Lanka, these are the five countries that are considered traditional tea makers. With the exception, notable exception of Japan, you don't see any kind of computerization. So there's very, very little mechanization. Any machines you do see are basically built to emulate human hand actions of rolling or twisting. Um, so it is all done by feel. The farmer is looking at the leaf that's come in that day, and again, depending on usually region-determined style of, I make this because everyone in my region makes it, they're looking for something very specific, but they have to monitor the oxidation level uh, based on what the weather's like outside. Right. So that Camellus sinensis plant, it's a plant. And this is what's so interesting to me about tea production. The farmer is a farmer and dealing with the agricultural side of uh, monitoring the Camellus sinensis plant, tending it, you know, um, seeing to its health and longevity, but also dealing with the production side of it. Very, um, unlike coffee, with tea, you can't take the leaf to like a green bean state like you can in coffee. I know it's perishable, but you still have a window in which you can ship it to many different roasters and they can put their final spin on it. With tea, the farmer has to be the producer because that process of oxidation happens as soon as the leaf is harvested off the plant. So you don't have the ability, oh, we'll set it aside and we can ship it somewhere else or we can take it down the mountain and someone else can process it. You have to do both sides. And until you're on the farm and seeing, you really see, this is an incredibly complex job. To get back to like what's the farmer looking for, how much moisture has evaporated from this leaf because that's going to give you a sense of where the oxidation is. And coming in as just a layperson, I'm like, well, I drink a lot of tea, but I don't know how to make it. It is, it looks like magic. Um, they're picking up the leaf, they're smelling it, they're just manipulating it a little bit. And something that to my eye or most people's eyes looks like, what's the difference between this batch and that batch? They're, it's night and day. Once you actually get to sit down and taste it, you're like, wow. Um, sometimes it depends where you are they might be like okay you know and this is this is a big deal because again these leaves are pretty precious it's like okay you try your hand at, at one step of the process so the harvesting has been taken care of you you know you're dealing with the best leaf material already it's been um, taken to a point where it's not overly oxidized or unoxidized or anything and it's like you just do that final step of how we manipulate this particular oolong and maybe it's a really gentle tossing imagine a batch that's about the size of a loaf pan so a really tiny leaf and you're picking it up in the palms of your hands and you're kind of twisting your fingers from pinky to pointer finger as you sort of turn this small pile of leaves over on itself. And you think, whatever, I can do that. You know, sort of tossing it? Is that what it feels it, like? but really gently. Okay. Not, like, not like, oh, I'm tossing a salad in, in a giant bowl for a big party, I need to get all the leaves dressed. You are tossing, you're definitely manipulating it, tossing it with your hands. You're trying to expose different parts of the leaf to air. And you taste your little batch at the end of it and you're like, this tastes like nothing. Sure, the color of the water darkens a little bit. You taste the guy next to you who's been doing this for 50 years and his tastes like magic. honey, gold <laughs> magic. And you're like, what? what's the difference? I watched you. I didn't just jump in and say, oh, I know how to do this. Like, <clears throat> let me let me try it. Like, I watched you. I thought I was using my fingers in the same way that you were, but there's something almost indescribable about the elements, like what to look for. Really, it's just experience. Yeah, that's so interesting because it, I mean, the power of flavor, mm -hmm is really in the hands of the producer. There is mechanical like processing that does happen, right? Because I mean, there's these lower quality teas where they're coming, they're it's the picking that's most uh, common as far as when there is like the intervention, but that's only for the lower grade teas, is that right? Yes, um, I'd say the mechanization, the big difference between what I'm, I'm calling and what at Impursuit of Tea we would call a traditional tea, what we source, they're hand-picked. Um, I'm gonna show you guys. This is a tea that I'm showing you called Silver Needle. And you can see it's comprised entirely just of these buds, this fine downy hair that's on them. Um, when you hand select for the buds and the new growth, you're actually getting the part of the Camellus sinensis plant that has the best flavor. The plant's directing all its energy there because it, again, it's been dormant all winter. Sure. And you get really the best that the plant can offer in terms of its flavor and fragrance you'll find in this new growth. And this is true also with vegetables. I mean, we talk about like sure, young, yeah. you know, the best is the young, right? Absolutely. And if you look in the farmer's market, you see that like big old carrot, like yeah, it's good for a horse. <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's a lot of matter there, but when you get those first carrots, again, especially for us here in the Northeast, 
when those vegetables start to come out, you're just like, this tastes like candy. <laughs> you know, the sure. plant, it's incredibly sweet and they're much more tender. Salad, you know, greens, all these things you can think of. Definitely there's, there's a, um, a similarity there. So when you're traditionally hand picking, you're getting just the bud or maybe it's the bud and the top two leaves. Depending on what style of tea you're making, it's pretty much predetermined what your pick set is going to be. You leave the rest of the plant to, um, to grow on its own because that the plant needs that to continue its life cycle. Now, when you mechanically harvest, and I'd say, I'm gonna give like a rough figure, but I should probably back it up with some real evidence because I don't like to just throw <laughs> numbers out there, but you know, most tea in the world, let's say 90 to 95% is commercial or commodity grade tea. So the stuff I just told you about the traditional tea, this is a fraction, a tiny fraction of how tea is still made. Um, mechanization in the tea world happened roughly a hundred years ago. In addition to hand harvesting versus mechanical harvesting, um, mechanical harvesting basically you're just using, it looks like a lawnmower, it's just chopping off the top of the tea plant. Yes, it will get the bud and the new growth, but it might get leaves a little further down that are a little tougher, not good flavor, and also maybe stems and twigs are getting in there too. Some of it is mechanically sorted out um, during this, again, very mechanized process to make the final product, usually uh, a tea that's going into a tea bag. But um, a lot of it isn't. And the leaf is then taken and usually chopped up. It's a process called CTC that's very economical and it's very quick because once you chop that leaf up, if you're making a black tea, for example, it's gonna oxidize incredibly quickly because you've ruptured all the cells basically at once. You don't have to sit there for 12 hours watching the tea leaf slowly oxidize. Yeah. You can do it in a matter of 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, depending on the conditions. Um, and you don't need to take the same care that you do need to take with a traditional tea of how do I manipulate this leaf and control the oxidation and understand where it is on that process. It's much more mechanical. Is this the basis of, is that the style that is like um, P, what is it called, PG tips? Like the, sure. that kind of, yep. because it, and it was also the base of chai from what I understand. Yes. Using that, it was the small sort of mechanically harvested lower quality that oxidizes quickly for efficiency. Yes, I should have got some out for you guys to show. I, I can show you afterwards just the difference in the grades. So instead of seeing whole leaves, it looks like coffee grounds. Yeah. Um, and basically that's the tea leaf that's been chopped up. And within that realm though, there's actually many, many different grading systems. It's not like, oh, it's traditional loose leaf handpicked by, you know, a maiden with flowers in her hair, or it's like the evil factory doing it. There's many things in between, and there's many grading systems, even with both, uh, both systems. With this CTC, um, is the technical term for it. I believe the machine was invented in, I want to say 1910, but again, I, I'll check on that for you. Um, the, the leaf being chopped up like that, what size are those particles? Every place but the U.S. has a really specific T, um, not tea demands, but they, they like what they like. And if you are, let's say, a producer in Assam in northeastern India and you're making CTC grade tea, which is Assam is one of the largest tea growing uh, regions in the world, it makes a lot of this lower grade style of tea. Um, you can't send the particles that are the size of a grain of, oh, let me think of a good example, like a breadcrumb to Western India because they like the particles that are the size of a grain of sand. I mean, it depends on what kind of sand. Is that based on flavor? Flavor and appearance and tradition. Interesting. And when I went to Assam, and again, we don't deal with commodity grade tea, I was just blown away because I thought like, well, the hard thing is picking out these amazing teas and like trekking up the mountains and finding these little producers and dealing with these shifting agricultural conditions and shifting agricultural conditions leading to flavors being different and how do I convey that to my customers but keep it within the realm of this is recognizable as a style of tea. Commodity grade tea is a night, I think it's a nightmare because you are dealing with tea usually from source from many different gardens, which is a lot of these regions, they call them gardens instead of farms, but it's the same, means the same thing. Sure. Um, and you're often blending it for consistency. Do you know how hard it is to take tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds of black tea leaf from Assam, from Sri Lanka, from Kenya, from Argentina, and you're the head blender at Lipton? 
It is not an easy job. I actually sat next to, this was years ago, but sat next to the head blender at Lipton. I was like, I'm going to hate this guy because, you know, he has a completely different perspective than I do. He's not going to know anything. His palate was insane because he had to deal with all these different ingredients and make it taste the same. That's so much harder than my job saying, oh, I sourced this lovely lapsang from Fujian and this mountain in China last spring. It was a little bit more, it had some lilac and cranberry notes. And this spring I find like it's got like a little bit of orange. And my audience is like, ooh, delicious. You know, they're, right. they're, yes. they're willing to deal with those um, nuances. It's so much harder to take an inconsistent agricultural product and to attempt to make it consistent. But more or less, that's what commodity or commercial grade tea is doing. Um, it's, valuing the cons it's valuing the consistency um, over the nuances of more of a traditional agricultural product. But it's also because of that mechanical harvesting using um, much more efficient and you know money uh, money efficient ways to get the final product which means ultimately for the tea company they can make a much better you know their profits are through the roof compared to something that's hand-picked and you're pressing it in handfuls against a hot wok to yield a very specific leaf shape that now you know two percent of the tea drinking world even knows or cares what it is so what is the incentive for a farmer to put that much energy into their product it, well, so it's hard for me to speak for them, right? Because yeah. you're dealing with people who come to it. I think if you look generally, at least in my experience, the farmers I've met, there is not a sense of obligation in a negative way, but it's it's this is a family tradition, and there's an importance in maintaining that and carrying it on because they see if I don't do this, if I don't step up and learn from my parents how to make this tea, guess what? Everyone else in the village has died off or they've moved away or they've moved to the city. I don't want to do it anymore. And it's very rare in the tea world um, to see these young people stepping up and doing it because guess what? It's a really hard job. You're out in the sun, in the rain, dealing with the plants. Once you bring the leaf in, you have to deal with it because again, that, that process of oxidation is happening. You need to monitor it. You, within 24 hours, usually maybe even less, you have the finished product. And if you're in a region where they're only picking and producing one time a year, which many of these regions, they are only in the spring, you get one chance or a few days. If you screw it up, if you know your cousins from down the valley don't show up to help you pick the leaf, the plant doesn't care. You know, it's The leaf is at the right stage for you to pick it and to process it. And if something's a little off, you're screwed, right? So you're like, why would anyone do this? Sure. Um, and I think, I'm sure this is something you've, have come into contact with with some of these other industries it's almost it's hard to describe why people choose to do it i think it's a little insane it's but it's it's more of a passion based uh, desire than than profit based so they they are making a conscious choice to grow and to process tea this way and to maintain these ancient traditions um so i feel like it's my obligation to bring it back here to an audience that has never tasted it before but can afford to buy it. And even when you step back and look at how much it costs, it is so reasonable. It's This is still something that's amazing um, but accessible, even at higher levels of tea. Sure, some of them might end up costing a retail consumer $3 per serving, but that's way cheaper than wine or you know sure. maybe some other, some other products. So. I'm really interested in how colonization has impacted both the, the market of tea and like the quality that has come out of it. Because like you said, it was in tandem with the mechanization of harvesting. Yes. Um, and it was, it's not native to every place that it grows, right? right. And I know that we still use some uh, word colonizing words to be able to describe some teas, right? Like Ceylon, things like that. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm curious your perspective of how it's impacted the market. Yeah, well, hopefully you have a couple hours because we, I mean, really, it's <laughs> colonization that's here. And again, this yes. is something I rarely get to discuss because it, it, I think it is so important because, you know, you look at these little leaves and sometimes we put so much on them, but this is a plant that has had such an intimate relationship with humans that I think you have to, at some point, you don't have to think about it every time you drink it, but it's a part of this. Whether you like it or not, or whether you understand it all, or what, no matter what side of, um, or opinion you have about it, it's gone into making this style of tea taste like it does right now. Um, tea is native to Yunnan, which is a province in southern China, mm -hmm. Laos, Burma, um, also Assam, that region we were talking about, northeastern India. If you look on a map, these they all touch. 
Um, and originally it was just a plant growing wild in the jungle. If you look at pictures of it, it looks like a tree with a trunk and people probably didn't brew it the way we're enjoying it now. That is an infusion of the leaf that's been manipulated and steeped in water. Um, maybe it was eaten, maybe it was mixed with food. It's a little unclear and also highly debated when people first started enjoying tea. It is an ancient drink, so of course it predates a lot of our um, record keeping sure. in many ways. Um, but from that area in southern China, it spread uh, throughout China. So we're looking at least, like with some accuracies, let's say 2,000 years ago, probably 25, closer to 25, 3,000 years ago. Um, it spread from China to Japan via Buddhist monks around 800 AD. Um, and that's pretty much where tea was. Now, when the British and you know the other Europeans started poking their noses into Asia and like, ooh, what's over here? Wow, you guys have silk and citrus, and what's this drink, tea? Um, the Portuguese, the Dutch, they were introduced to this product, but the British were the ones who really got a taste for it, as we know. Um, but changed the beverage world um, it, when it comes to tea yes. dramatically. So. At this time, when the British first started heavily trading with China for tea, we're, we're talking like, let's say 1600s, okay. um, to, to generalize. Uh, all tea was green tea and white tea. These the barely or not oxidized forms of tea where the leaf would be picked and it would be heated to stop oxidation, that was tea. You didn't have options of oolong or black tea like we have now. So the China wisely knew that they had a monopoly on this pro product that the Europeans all of a sudden were insane for it, right? So they didn't sell any tea plants, any tea seeds. Um, Europeans, outsiders, were not permitted into China at all, not just the not just the British, but again, probably wise that the emperor was like, oh, I see how this is working, <laughs> like, and I want to try and maintain control of this very... Um, they saw their assets and they protected them. Yep, exactly. Um, so they, the Chinese were happy to sell tea to the Europeans and to the British. They would only accept silver in payment for the tea. Again, I wasn't there, so I'm, I guess that was just a currency that made sense to both sides. And the British actually ran out of silver. They were buying so much tea. At this point, I mean, the minting process was pretty complex, dealing with, I believe it's silver from Mexico that had to get like smelted. I don't know a lot about metal, like dealt with in Spain somehow. So it wasn't like, oh, I'll just, I'll just put a little bit more of my credit card, like no problem. They didn't have the silver and they're like, everybody needs the tea. They are nuts about this stuff. I can understand that part of it. Like, where's my tea? I need it. Well, there's this theory actually that part of the colonization efforts was because their population was addicted to and dependent on sugar, tea, cocoa. Yep. They were introduced to these things and they wanted to be able to have access to them. And so that was part of this big right. push, right? right? Can you imagine going through your life up until now and never having caffeine? The first time you have it, you must be like, I feel better than I've felt ever. And <laughs> I'm on top of the world. Like I, I must have more of this amazing substance because yes. it's a stimulant. The other really cool thing about Camille sinensis is that it happens to have this chemical called theanine, which is unique to Camille sinensis and only one type of mushroom. Now theanine is a chemical that has calming effects, but it's not a sedative. So in the chemical world, this is actually really unusual. Normally if a chemical calms you down, it also puts you to sleep. But theanine has this amazing quality of kind of making you mellow, but you can still stay alert. So when you combine the theanine in conjunction with that caffeine, the stimulating effects, you get this amazing mood boosting, sort of long mood boosting over time um, effect. Yeah, again, it's almost euphoric. I mean, yes. they call it tea drunk. Have yes. You, yes. yes, absolutely. And it, again, we can drink for five hours and you guys can experience tea drunk. It's a good kind <laughs> of drunk because you, you do feel like you're in an altered state. Um, so yes, the, the Europeans, they got pretty much addicted to this stuff. They ran out of silver to buy the tea. So where are we going to get silver from quickly? Well, this is when the British were also starting to kind of colonize uh, India and other areas um, in this region. So they found, hey, you know what's around here? There's a lot of poppies. So opium has been around. Opiates have been around for a very, very long time. But right. it's, why don't we commercialize opium production and then we'll sell cakes of opium to the Chinese for silver. And then we'll use the silver to buy the tea. And this is actually what happened. Really? Yep. So it, it's you could look at it as you're like, well, it's just exchanging one drug for another. But opium obviously had a really, really severe effect on Chinese society. Devastating. Uh, yeah, devastating. Eventually, the emperor said, and again, I'm, this is like the Cliff Notes version of it. But the emperor said, 
you can't, um, you know, you can't sell opium to my people anymore. I'm outlawing it. And the British were like, hey, free trade, man. If, uh, if people don't want to buy it, they don't have to. We're not forcing anyone to buy it. Of course, it's an opiate, so talk about addictive properties. Once people start buying it, chances are they're going to continue to buy it. Right. So the British said, no, we want to fight for the right to sell you opium. And they kept pushing for this, and this is where we get the opium wars. But it stemmed from, we need silver to buy tea from you. Wow. So fast forward again a little bit. The British won the opium wars due to their superior naval powers at the time. I mean, not that China was any stranger to war, but in terms of this type of battle, much of it was fought at these big trading ports where, again, the British would bring the opium, and then they would buy the tea and then um, ship it back to Europe. Uh, they won the first opium wars. This led to the opening of five ports in China and to the development of Hong Kong um, and Guangzhou, um, which is a huge trading city now, it used to be called Canton. Um, these ports now, because the Chinese lost the opium wars, they were open to foreigners, so they started edging their way in a little bit. So now they didn't have to stay out in the harbor and do the trade. They could come to these sort of uh, meet, meeting grounds, basically, at the edge of, at the, edge of the country. Now, the British like weren't satisfied with that, and um, they, the British East India Company actually hired a Scottish botanist named Robert Fortune, and he disguised himself as Chinese and snuck into interior China to observe tea production and to steal tea seeds and tea plants. This story, you should actually read, the, the book is, he, he cat um, cataloged all of his travels. I find it astounding because at this time, I mean, no foreigners were allowed in China, and I think like someone from Scotland must have stuck out. <laughs> like I a mean, sore thumb. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, he's from that other weird region in China. So, and how did he, how did he dress? Like, what did he do? I, I, apparently, based off of his journals, he didn't talk a lot, which is probably good because right. he didn't know how to speak any of the dialects. Right. He, I don't know how he convinced people to go along with him, locals to go along with him, because it's threat of death for them too if they're found out, you know, assisting a foreigner, especially with corporate espionage to sure. steal one of the most valuable products in China. Um, so he basically dressed up like a Mandarin and said he was from like a far northern region, like up near Mongolia, because he was really tall. He's like this strapping Scotsman. Snuck around. And, you know, you listen to the story, and I'm like, God, that guy, I don't, can I curse? Is that a place? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that guy's kind of an asshole. Like, he goes in and steals his product, but at the same time, he was a botanist. For him, it was interesting. You know, I don't think he was trying to harm Chinese, the Chinese economy, it's like, hey, these people hired me. He had a really interesting kind of rough home life, too. So I think he was like, I'm trying to make a buck. And I, it took a lot of courage, I guess, to sort of jump into this country that you know nothing about. And if you're found out, they're just going to more or less, you know, chop your head off. Um, this is also true in, in parts of Africa as mm -hmm. well. I mean, you have these people, they sent people that actually were legitimized in their fields exactly. to go do this research. Exactly. And so that was the first one. And But I know I've read journals of people going to the first time for Haiti, first time for East Africa. Yeah. Again, going back to a time when it wasn't easy to get all these products that we now have in front of us and people didn't travel for pleasure. No way. Like maybe you go a couple towns over, like maybe the other side of the county, but you stay where you grew up. Right, it travels expensive, and those I don't know those people. You know, I think the people who did travel at that time were incredibly adventurous. Like to go halfway around the world, well knowing, hey, I'm probably never, maybe never going to come back here again. I can't imagine the mindset. It'd be like now if someone said, hey, do you want to go to Mars? I'd say no because like there's no trees there. But you know, <laughs> there's someone somewhere who'd be like, sure, sure. But Mars doesn't have resources and people that are going to that are right. going to result in like oppression and conquer. Right. And Otherwise, we would have we would have been there already if it did. So. That's very true. <laughs> so, That's very true. So anyway, Robert Fortune sneaks out with the plants. Um, it, it wasn't his first mission. wasn't super successful. A lot of the plants died. Now at this time, actually, um, we're drinking a Lapsang Suchang right now, which is a black tea. By this point, uh, Robert Fortune time and when the tea industry in India really starts taking off because of the British um, push for this, mid-1800s, like 1830s is roughly when it started, but 1850s is when it really um, really started up in earnest, um, black tea was being produced. Now, probably, this Lapsang Suchong that we're drinking, this is the first style of black tea that was ever made, and most likely it was a production error. So remember, up until 1600s, maybe early 1700s, everything was green tea. All tea, all the leaves were picked, pan-fired, and unoxidized. Um, this is a bit of an apocryphal story because, like all these other 
amazing products, you have all these legends and myths, but the story with Lapsang Souchong is that a tea farmer in Fujian, which is where this tea is from, was making green tea and the emperor was sending his armies through Fujian on their way to a neighboring province to attack. The army made it about halfway through, and it, this is a beautiful region, very tall mountains, and they see a clearing and it's like, oh, we can't make it any further tonight, so we're just gonna camp here. And the farmer's in the middle of about to pan fire these leaves. And the army's like, sorry, orders the emperor, we got to camp. And like stretching out and, you know, taking over his production area. And I picture him sitting there thinking, oh, my God, the leaves, the leaves, the leaves. They're rotting. They're rotting. Like, they, they're going to be ruined. The army moves on the next morning to try and salvage it because, again, this might have been his only harvest for that, that season. He decided to try and dry them out over a smoke fire, probably that was used for meat or some other foods. Um, and the, there's a local red pine wood that's native to this region that you would have used for that. And so then the trader, because this is slightly an interior region in Fujian, and the tea farmer isn't, you know, trucking all the way to the port city to bring the product. There were intermediaries. So the trader comes, hey, you got anything? I'll take it to the city. And he's like, just this crappy batch of rotted tea. And he's like, all right, let me see what I can do. Comes back months later, maybe it's the next year. He's like, hey, I sold your tea. And it sold for a really high price. Like the Europeans lapped it up because they don't know any better. <laughs> they don't have a tea tradition. And maybe because the tea took eight or nine months to go from China all the way back to England, a fully oxidized leaf is going to store better. So if it's in especially non-ideal conditions in the hold of a ship, it's gonna taste better after nine months than a green tea that's getting exposed to maybe some like, again, temperature shifts or salt spray, things like that. So the next year, the British came back and they're like, we want more of that tea, the dark tea. We like that. So the Chinese started producing these darker styles of tea, probably in response to the Europeans in the region, which I also find fascinating because did Europeans, what, what did green tea taste like to them? Did it make sense with what else they were eating and drinking at the time? Sure. I think in Northern Europe, a black tea makes way more sense. They probably have more root vegetables, cider, all these things that if you kind of line them all up, you're like, wow, that flavor profile does go better, maybe with the European diet at the time, sure. than green tea, which again, even now you tend to associate, wow, it goes really well with a lot of Asian food, of course. Right. You know, they were developed at the same time. One thing I'm envious of the tea industry is that it's one, it's so accessible, and two, it maintains its quality all the way into the consumer. And yes. so you can brew at home, you can have someone brew it for you, and yep. it's going to maintain that integrity. Yes. And one thing that I've noticed, um, in coffee shops is that they don't finish the brewing behind the bar. They just put it in a tea bag. Even some of their nice teas, they'll put it in a, in a bag and they'll just give it to you and then you're supposed to finish it yourself. And I think it's one of the only things in this, you know, third and fourth wave co sort of coffee scene where people are not giving it the respect and time that they are everything else on that bar. I mean, they will change a milk product based on fat content yep. or the way it steams or the branding. Right. And yet this tea, we're still serving it as an unfinished product. And so I'm a big advocate of finish the brewing behind the bar, even if it's to go to be able to give it to them. Does that sound yeah. insane or is no, that is that sort of what the tea world is pushing for? I don't, I'm not a big on like, it has to be done this one way. There's only one way. I mean, I, I am a vessel, right? Like this tea is coming through me. I didn't make it. I didn't invent it. Sure. Um, but what I tell um, baristas is to say, even if the person's like, I don't care about oxidation and tradition and what elevation this mountain was at, I just need my tea. I'm tired, my throat hurts, I'm hungover, whatever. Hopefully, they put the bag in the cup, the person walks out the door, and they bring the cup up to their nose and to or their mouth to take a sip, and they get that aroma. And they're like, what is that? I didn't know tea had an aroma. Um, I think the most notable difference between commodity gray teas and traditional loose leaf, commodity gray teas smell like nothing. The yeah. water color changes, but man, that fragrance is gone. And if you smell something like this Lapsang, they oh just gosh. made from Fujian, China. Wow. I mean, the smell is... It's like umami. Yes. Really savory, really intense. Um, but I get a sweetness there yeah. as well. But, you know, if you have a lid on, plastic lid on a cup, like you're missing out on all this, right? But I, I, I um, ask baristas to inform customers, hey, when you get back to the office, when you get home, throw a little bit more hot water over that leaf. And you might think, well, that's such a minor point. They'll, maybe they'll brew it two or three times and that leaf will open up and they'll actually get an arc of flavor and fragrance over time because different areas of the leaf now have been exposed to the water. Like that Baochang Oolong we started with, I don't know if you noticed, but we did three infusions. Each one's a little different. One's not better than the other, but can you imagine missing out on that, sipping your cup to go and you go to walk down the subway and you throw it in the trash? Meanwhile, when I go to northern Taiwan, you know, next fall, and the Baochang producer's like, oh, how did you like that last batch? I thought it had these amazing 
creamy lily notes. How are people in New York drinking it? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. Because if you knew they brewed it once and threw the leaves away, you would be horrified. Sure. Um, so I encourage them, especially more for restaurants that we work with where the customer is seated and there's a longer interaction between the server and the guest. If they want tea, try or ask them if they want the beginning of the meal. They can be drinking this all throughout the meal. They be, can be getting multiple infusions. There can be alcohol on the table at the same time. There certainly is in China and India. It's not like here where we have it always um, so segmented. But get multiple infusions out of the leaves. And even just that one small point when it comes to preparation and enjoyment, I think is, I don't know. I think it's pretty re revelatory, you could say, for sure. some folks. Haven't quite mastered the uh, the sales approach of having someone come in and drink tea silently for two hours and then buy it for their restaurant. But we're, we're working towards that. <laughs> working towards that. Cool. Well, thank you so much. We really yeah. appreciate learning from you. Absolutely. Thanks again to Anna for taking the time to chat. If you're interested in what the team at In Pursuit of Tea is up to, you can find them online, inpursuitoftea.com. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review wherever you found this podcast. We are a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. For this segment, I'm focusing on popular music from Taiwan. Taiwan is fascinating because it's both a regional form of Chinese culture, as well as a distinct culture on its own. So this cultural dualism exists because of the political and social circumstances that have structured the island state. Taiwan is officially part of the Republic of China and has undergone several economic, social, and political changes throughout its history. And of course, Taiwanese popular music reflects that. So let's get into it. In order to understand the evolution of Taiwanese popular music, it's important to know the historical shifts in power that occurred over the last century. And while Taiwan has a long and complex history of indigenous inhabitants, Dutch and Spanish colonialism, and Chinese imperial rule, the notion of popular music didn't form until the period of Japanese colonialism that started in 1895 and lasted until 1945. Taiwan's music industry and recording business was established in the 1920s with the Japanese-owned Columbia Record Company. Under Japanese colonial rule, Taiwan underwent a severe project of assimilation, forcing Taiwanese to negate their Chinese heritage, language, and even names. During the occupation period, popular songs were reflective of many Japanese musical traditions and they increasingly started to express desires for political and social reform. After the surrender of Japan in 1945 at the end of World War II, the Republic of China ruled Taiwan under martial law. Chinese military rule established Mandarin as the official language of Taiwan, prohibiting Taiwanese language songs, as well as songs sung in indigenous dialects. During this transformative time, Taiwan became saturated with Chinese culture and its pop music industry essentially became an extension of the film industries out of Shanghai and Hong Kong. In fact, the most popular songs in Taiwan during this era tended to be theme songs for films that were coming out of mainland China. By the late 1960s, the sound of Taiwanese pop was drenched in the Western musical styles of soul, R&B, and funk, and by the 1970s, disco fever had fully made its way to the island states. In reaction to the censorship of native Taiwanese identity in pop music, the late 1970s witnessed an influx of modern folk songs composed by college students that expressed a growing Taiwanese consciousness and called for a return to their native roots. These college students renounced Western pop songs and began writing their own campus songs or folk songs. 
This college-led folk music scene provided the ideological building blocks for a new era of popular music to begin in the 1980s following democratic reforms in mainland China. After the lifting of martial law in 1987, a distinct and modern form of Taiwanese pop music emerged that coincided with the resurgence of native cultural identity. A more distinct style of Taiwanese pop was born that both reflected the hybridity of its influences and made a social statement about the cultural agency and artistic control of the Taiwanese people. After 1987, pop songs were sung in Taiwanese and other indigenous dialects to promote Taiwanese consciousness. And in 1989, a collective of musicians called Blacklist Workshop made an album that blended pop, rock, hip-hop, jazz, and ambient experimental music. This album helped to cement a genre known as New Taiwanese Song. Pop music in Taiwan had forged a new path, and that path allowed for the development of a vibrant indie music scene to flourish in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Today, Taiwanese indie artists honor the transitional decade of the 1980s by pushing the boundaries on Taiwanese musical identity and providing a stark alternative from the mass-produced Mandarin pop or Mando pop world. The late 1980s in Taiwan was a remarkable moment with the end of dictatorship and the birth of a more democratic society. It was also a time of extraordinary artistic creativity. That artistic creativity reconfigured the notion of what pop sounds, looks, and feels like, and as a result, sparked a movement amongst Taiwanese musicians to push back against conformist notions of pop music. Popular music is always constructed and transformed by the political powers that form society, and the evolution of Taiwan's popular music is inherently connected with the state's production of new ideologies. Therefore, the phases of popular music in Taiwan are embedded in the ways in which the Taiwanese struggled, negotiated, collaborated, and celebrated with Japanese colonialism, Chinese nationalism, and Western influence. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Black Broke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, Sorceress fans, stay curious.